you guys probably, you, you may not know this about me, but I, I fall asleep really easy. Uh, if I sit still, same place for a couple hours, I'm asleep. Uh, this is not a function of being a dad. This is a function of being me. And uh, I don't sleep a lot with the little kids. I especially didn't sleep last night because I was so jacked up after the game. So I would fall asleep if I sat still for a couple hours. If I had to listen to a sermon, I would fall asleep uh, tonight. Uh, so, but this, this is really hard uh, in, a, in a professional environment. I, I admire people who can sit at a, at a, at a, in an office and all day long, uh, probably more than anybody. I just don't know how that's possible because it's not possible for me. Uh, this, the good news is I live downtown. There's four coffee shops in a mile of my house, so I can rotate around. I can sit somewhere, move, sit somewhere, move, sit somewhere, move. Uh, but what this offers me is uh, a really good look into hipster fashion. <laughs> and as a frequenter of these places, I've seen it all. Uh, and you know exactly what I mean. Uh, hipster clothes in the most extreme case include um, clothes that you're not really sure. Are you being serious about this? Or is this just a joke? Uh, it could be high-waisted skinny jeans. It could be vintage tanks. It could be these crazy things called rompers. Um, and here soon, the deliberately, what I call the deliberately homely sweaters uh, will be coming back. Uh, I, I've got to admit, I've been affected, uh, infected a little bit myself. Uh, pants I used to think baggy, I now think are. Um, keeping my hair a bit more groomed with a hard part is now a thing for me. And I can't say, uh, I, I, I'm not sure if this is a hipster thing, but I can't deny it either. And so this week, there's someone uh, I knew uh, from years ago that's uh, in fashion. I said, hey, I, um, here's where I think about going in my introduction. And she sent me this amazing infograph uh, with the cycle of hipster fashion. Now, this is like an academic thing. And uh, it, this infograph says it all starts, the beginning of the cycle starts with the outsider. And the outsider is someone who's really bored with conservative fashion. And so what they do is uh, th they think that the majority of people have poor taste. People find what the outsider chooses to do, maybe high top athletic tennis shoes uh, or the uh, deliberately humbly sweater uh, to be distasteful. Uh, but they go for it. They're the outsider. The next phase is the precipice. A few trendy people uh, acknowledge the outsider and join in. And all of a sudden there's this cool cachet has to do with this certain style. The precipice moves on to the mainstream where the, the masses catch on and they wear the deliberately homely sweaters. And then there's the decline. The, 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 the deliberately homely sweaters uh, peak in popularity, they lose favor. And here's my favorite. The fifth step is the ironic. Uh, people start wearing this delib deliberately homely sweater as a joke. The nostalgic, the sweater takes a mysterious turn from being a joke towards evoking warm feelings for the past. And lastly, there's the conservative side. The shoes, or the, 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 the sweater becomes a genuine article of sensible fashion and a sign of good taste. Doesn't that nail it? Doesn't that describe what most of us, uh, the, how things that most of us thought were the worst things you could possibly wear are now in style? How they're mainstream? But there's a cycle to all this fashion. It's not just hipster fashion, but something's introduced, it increases in popularity, it peaks, it declines, and it's finally rejected. It's a bell curve. 
It's a cycle. But let me ask a question. Are there cycles in the Christian life? Are there cycles in the life of a church? I think there are. And I think we'll see it in Judges chapter 2. So if we'll read this together. Uh, Judges chapter 2, we'll start at verse 16. And then the Lord raised up judges. And we'll pause right there. A judge is not what you think of uh, that, that takes place uh, two blocks this way and on the corner of Maine and, uh, and North Lyme. Those courthouses, those aren't these kind of judges. Judges, what it means here is more of a, 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 a military, sla- a general military leader slash king. That's kind of what this position is like, the judge. Okay, let's keep going. The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which the fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers, my because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. The word of the Lord. So I think what we'll see, the four steps in, the, in this cycle are, uh, here's for you note takers, here we go. Uh, it's going to be rebellion, then retribution, then repentance, and then rescue. Rebellion, retribution, repentance, and rescue. Now we're in this book of Judges. Uh, the, judge, the, the book of Judges is the seventh book in the Bible. And you've got to really know what happened before. And last week I spent a little more time on this, but I want to just do it briefly. What God did way back in Genesis 12 is that he promised to make a nation for himself. This, this nation that's going to be for himself is going to bless all the other nations. This is his plan. His redemption plan is going to happen through the nation of Israel. And this nation of Israel, that they're going to have godly leaders. This nation of Israel, they're going to have a law. And this nation of Israel are going to have a land. And you get through these books, you get through Genesis, you get through Exodus, you get through Leviticus, you get through Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you see a people, they have a law, they have leaders, they have lots of people, but the one thing they don't have is the land. And that's where Moses is. You've got, you, you've got the river, you've got Moab on one side, you've got Canaan on the other. Canaan is the promised land. Canaan is the land that God's promised to give them if they'll obey. And they're standing on the edge on this side of Moab, but they've got to get across the river. And Moses dies over here. So Moses sings, all this stuff happened. All the redemptive plan that God's promised has happened, except they haven't entered the land yet. But this is the task. This is where Moses 
tasks Joshua and passes him the baton of leadership for the, country, for the nation. Joshua leads them into this country. But this country, Canaan over here, it's not a blank slate. It's not like there's nobody who lives there. The Canaanites live there. And it's, if you were here, this, you'll hear in just a minute. But the Canaanites were a wicked people, practicing all kinds of sexual immorality. They, they sacrificed their children. They were into sorcery. And God, call, God calls them to go in, steal their land, and to kill them. God calls them to break the sixth and the eighth commandments. It's a tough thing for us as moderns to accept, but this is what God called them to do. If you want to hear more about it, you can go listen to my sermon last week. Um, so they go in, and, 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 they, and they do a good job. The book of Joshua, Joshua leads his people in really prosperous ways till towards the end. And towards the end, he begins, he and the other leaders in Israel become more tolerant of Canaan. And they become more tolerant of Canaan. It, it, it disobeys what God had called them to do. And so God gives them a second chance. That's what we saw last week in Judges chapter 1. He gives them the second chance to drive out these nations, but we see they're not going to do it. So what's going to happen? If they're not going to drive out these Canaanites, what's life going to look like for them? It's going to look just like what we read here just a few minutes ago, that there's going to be this cycle. And these cycles are going to be of mediocrity. So when we went through there, do, do they rebel? Absolutely. Does God, does God punish them? Absolutely. Is their repentance full? No way. And so that's why it's called cycles of mediocrity, because there's a better way to do it than what we read right here. You're not going to read this and be like, oh, I know exactly how to live for God now. Because really what we see in Judges 2 is a negative example. So I'm going to zoom out a little bit. This is going to, be, uh, this is going to describe our... Uh, our sinful condition. But if we zoom out, we see what God wants to do to restore us in the bigger ways of Scripture. So the first part, rebellion. Uh, look at verse 17. We see the rebellion right there. And it says, They did not listen to their judges, for they hoard, you know where that word comes from, after other gods and bowed down to them. We spoke last week about idolatry. Idolatry is, is, is forbidden in the first commandment. And it's idolatry, really, it's not, uh, it's not the idols that we see in Chinese restaurants. That's not idolatry. It is, it's part of it, but it's much bigger than that. It's loving something or someone more than God. So idolatry, it takes on a whole lot of, a whole lot of different forms, from comfort to religion to materialism to power. Our hearts are made to love. The problem with our hearts is they love the wrong things. Uh, John Calvin, one of the founders of our faith, he said that uh, our hearts are idol factories. What that means is our default as human beings is to find anything to love other than God. And this is what we have in common with the people in Judges. The Canaanites, what did they love? What were their gods? Well, if, I had the, if we had the whole passage listed here, we would have saw in verse 13. Verse 13, their gods were Baal, and Ashtaroth. Baal and Ashtaroth. And their gods, Baal and Ashtaroth, proved all too appealing to the hearts of God's people. See, Baal, uh, for, the, for the Canaanites, uh, was the god of fertility. Fertility in crops, fertility in livestock, and fertility in family. And Baal had a female consort. He had a female partner. His female partner's name was Ashtaroth. And so in Canaanite theology, the fertility of the land depended on the sexual relationship of Baal and Ashtaroth. But the Canaanites didn't just trust 
that Baal and Ashtaroth would do their thing and that they would have crops, livestock, and family. They thought that Baal and Ashtaroth could be prompted. And guess what? Guess how they were to be prompted through their own sexual relationship within the nation of Canaan. And it was part of worship. So what would happen is that worshipers would come to worship and there would be temple prostitutes at the Baal shrines. And there, the Canaanite man would go as Baal and the sacred prostitute would be Ashtaroth and they were trying to get Baal to make it rain. Trying to get Baal to make their livestock get pregnant. Trying to get Baal to make their families increased. They really thought that through this sacred prostitution, it was possible to assist, to encourage, and to bring the great orgasm of Baal in the sky to make it rain. And all things would be right in the world. So God's people, the Israelites, they didn't just worship Baal and Ashtaroth because they were available. They worshiped God and Ashtaroth because they were appealing. See, Baal could make you rich. Baal had a much looser sexual ethic. Yeah, Yahweh saved them from Egypt and all, but he never promised them earthly riches. His sexual ethic seemed a little rigid. So yeah, the God who saved them from Egypt is good, but we're talking about real life stuff here. We're talking about jobs. We're talking about money. We're talking about sexuality. And for the Israelites, it was more appealing for them to coerce fake gods to do things for them in the here and now than it was to trust the God who had made promises to them in the past. So you know what they did. They took this Canaanite theology and they took the theology, the real true theology that they had and they mixed them together. So they would still say, I'm a, I'm a worshiper of Yahweh. But that's not what their life looked like. Their day-to-day rhythms looked like they were Baal worshipers. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Now, I know you don't have uh, Go Baal as bumper stickers on your car. I know you don't have t-shirts to say, I'm for Ashtaroth. I know it seems primitive. But don't we worship things like comfort, approval, control, reputation, and power, just like the people of Judges? See, the problem with idolatry is that we can maintain our doctrinal convictions. We can usually maintain our ethical standards, but our hearts can be divided. The Israelites would have said, I'm a worshiper of Yahweh, yet their life told a different story. Their functional God was money and sex. See, when we define sin this way, it's really, really hard to wiggle out from underneath of it. When we define sin this way, it frames our lives in this exclusive, loving, legal commitment with God. It sounds a lot like marriage, and it's because it is. See, God calls himself the bridegroom both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Which means that God doesn't want us to just obey him as a citizen obeys a king. God doesn't want us to follow him just like a sheep follows a shepherd. God wants us to know him and love him as a wife loves a husband. And this is why the author of Judges in verse 17 called their lives 
whoredom. They're cheating on their maker. They're cheating on their redeemer. And so do we. Rebellion. Then there's retribution. We see the retribution, verses 20 to 23. See it right there in the beginning of 20. It says, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. You see that God didn't turn a blind eye to him. He, he, he saw the plight of his people. He doesn't look past it and ignore his rebellious children. Instead, he punishes them. But the punishment that he inflicts on his people is more akin to the kind of pain that a surgeon inflicts on his or her patient than it is of abuser to their abusee. I have an uncle, uh, good old Uncle Mike. Uh, he had uh, triple bypass surgery a couple, several months ago. He's still rehabbing from it. But when the surgeon showed up to Uncle Mike's uh, surgery, he didn't say, I'm really trying. Uh, this Mike guy, I'm going to put him down. I, I, I can't stand him. He wasn't being mean when he inflicted pain on him. He was saving his life. Uncle Mike would have died within the next 12 months if he didn't have this surgery. Let me put it another way. What if love and hate are two sides of the same coin? What if anger is not the opposite of love, but the outworking of it? What if anger is not the opposite of love, but the outworking of it? Suppose a wife discovers that uh, her husband has been unfaithful to her. She knows she's a sinner. She knows she's got her own problems, but she's been a devoted, committed, loving wife for the duration of their marriage. So what's she supposed to do? Is she supposed to say, you win some, you lose some, that's just how the cookie crumbles? If she did, would you say that that's a response of, that proves her love for him? No, it wouldn't be. That's way too nonchalant. If she really loved him, you would expect her to exhibit anger and jealousy and fight for her marriage, but confront him with vigilance. One author says, jealousy is love burst into its proper flame. See, jealousy is required when exclusive love is called for. But is this what you imagine when you imagine God's punishment? Don't we tend to view his punishment as flowing from from a place of vindictiveness rather than a holy, jealous love? Now, I'm not saying that all suffering is due to our sin. The victims of the hurricanes, they're not suffering because Houston and Miami are wicked, evil places. Nor am I saying that the suffering that we experience uh, as persecution for our faith is discipline for our sin. But at times, we do suffer as a result of our poor choices. And we can either view it as a loving parent disciplining a child or as the temperamental tyrant of the sky making our lives miserable. And God's punishment for Israel's sin was as a loving father disciplining this child. That's what we read about in verses 20 and 23. It says, holy, jealous love. It's a retribution. We rebel. God reacts. And then look, what, what, what's the next thing that happens? Look at, look at the second part of verse 18. 
This is repentance. Uh, For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. So here you've got it. The, the Canaanites, the people that they lived among, uh, were, uh, were afflicting pain on the Israelites. They were, uh, they were oppressing them in some ways. And what did God's people do? They groaned. And what you're going to see over and over in the book of Judges is a God who's attentive to his people. And he responds to their miserable estate. But notice what the word that's used in verse 18 of the people. It's the word groaned. Groaned. So when I say this is a cycle, the step in this cycle is repentance, you need to understand the word repentance in big quotation marks. Repentance. Because this isn't real heart level repentance that's sorrowful for their sins. This is more like uh, the kind of groaning that comes from an injured animal before its life is over. See, Paul makes this distinction between groaning and true repentance. True, true um, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Okay? So when we have godly grief, we're going to repent. But there's another kind of grief. There's worldly grief. And this worldly grief produces death. So you see what he's saying here, don't you? Everyone experiences grief. Everyone experiences sorrow. But they're very different. And how do we tell the difference between these two kinds of grief? I think uh, one of our creeds, the Heidelberg Catechism, which we read tonight actually, uh, defines godly sorrow the best. It says, uh, godly sorrow is to be genuinely sorry for sin, to hate it more and more, and to run away from it. Godly sorrow is to be genuinely sorry for sin, to hate it more and more, and to run away from it. See, worldly sorrow, on the other hand, it feels sorry for getting caught. Godly sorrow doesn't need to get caught in order to be broken over sin. Because what godly sorrow does, it realizes that sin's so serious that someone's got to die for it, either me or Jesus. Kevin DeYoung writes this about these two different kinds of sorrow. He says, most of us are content with regret. We just want to feel bad for a while. Have a good cry. Enjoy the cathartic experience. Bewail our sin and how selfish or stupid or sorry we are. But we don't really want to change. We don't really want to live differently than we have been. End quote. This was Israel. They groaned. They didn't repent. Yet God in his rich mercy had mercy on them. It's unbelievable. And that's what gets us to the fourth step in the cycle, rescue. Look at the very beginning, verse 16. It says that God saved them with a judge. But then it says that God, that the Israelites didn't listen to them. They didn't listen to their judges. So what the Israelites did is the Israelites embodied this external righteousness during the lifetime of a judge. But once the judge died, they just sloughed back into idolatry. So the, 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 the judges play this restraining role, uh, kind of like a kindergarten teacher uh, when the kindergarten class, when she leaves the classroom or he leaves the classroom. Think about a class of kindergartners. 
recently, uh, Audrey, our middle child's in, in kindergarten, and I was, uh, our, our kids, our oldest two go to the church's school, and um, I was walking by the classroom, and uh, it, was, it was pure chaos. And then I looked around, and I thought, gosh, there's not an adult in here. And right down the hallway, I don't know, I don't know what happened, I didn't ask any questions, but the, the kindergarten teacher saw me, she, you know, she knows I'm a pastor at the church, she saw me, and her face was just, just, no, there's no color in her face whatsoever. And I was like, don't worry about it. And when she stepped into the classroom, the class went from totally crazy to in total order. It was unbelievable. And that's exactly what the judge was like for the people of Israel. They had this restraining effect. See, the Israelites needed something better than a human leader. They needed someone more permanent than a leader who dies. They needed someone who could, not, who, who could deliver them, not just from the hands of the Canaanites, not just from their bodies, but who could deliver them in their souls. And you and I, we can read the whole book of Judges, all 21 chapters, and you will not find this kind of leader in Judges. The book and this passage leave us longing for a solution, a better kind of leader. And the solution is going to be found in the person of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus has much more than a restraining force on us because he changes our hearts. Not just our behavior. Jesus does so much more than just deliver us from our temporal bondage to sin. He saves us from hell. Jesus his reign extends far beyond his 33 years of life, but it's continued through his Holy Spirit, and it's going to last for eternity. This is the kind of rescue Jesus wants to provide for you, friends. But maybe you're stuck in this cycle. Where are you in here? Are you stuck in the cycle of pornography? You try to restrain yourself. You, you try to use a filter on your computer, a filter on your phone, just like a judge. It just has this restraining effect, but your heart remains unchanged. Maybe you've simply been dealing with your pornography as a behavior without doing the hard heart work of asking why. Maybe you're not in a, uh, a cycle marked by sexual sin. Maybe you're in a cycle marked by an irrational fear of man. You live to please other people. You're continuously seeking a positive evaluation from other people. And when they give it to you, you're filled. You're confirmed and you're satisfied. But you know, in your moments of clarity, you know it's an empty pursuit. And maybe you've met your match. Maybe God's put someone in your life that you so desperately want their approval. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a peer. Maybe it's a supervisor. But you know that this person is not going to give it to you. And it's painful. And God's the one who's dealt you this hand. And he did it so that you might realize that this pursuit for this certain person's affirmation, it's empty. See, God did not create us to find our worth in the praise of others. He found us to find our worth in the praise of him. And he wants you to know that so bad that he's put this impossible person in your life. Maybe your cycle is anger. 
The last time you blew up, you got caught. Felt bad about it. You didn't think you were capable of saying those kinds of things with that kind of force. But you did. In order to kind of get out from underneath that weight, you you tried to rationalize. You begin to pin your anger on the person you got mad at. You start to say, if they wouldn't have said or done this, then I wouldn't have gotten so angry. Maybe you feel bad it happened, but you don't hate it and you aren't running from it. Friends, Jesus is our great rescuer. No parent, no spouse, no pastor, no counselor, no mentor is going to save you. Just like no judge is going to save the Israelites. Jesus is the only one who can save us from ourselves. He's the only one who can save us from the devil. He's the only one who can save us from the sinful world that we live in. And the only reason that he did this is because he loved you. He was glad to deliver you in such a way. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your jealous love. Uh, Lord, you love us too much to let us totally wreck our lives. <laughs> so, Lord, you send your discipline upon us. And so, Lord, I pray we would see it as such. Uh, Lord, long, I, I notice in my own soul just a longing for heaven today. I'm so sick of being enslaved to my own anger. I'm so sick of being enslaved to my own selfishness. So, Lord, would you deliver us? Give us glimpses of victory in the now that we might hunger for heaven. In Christ's name, amen.